The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, let me invite you to open me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're the 3 and 4s class, you guys are dismissed to your class. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we are this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, you'd like a hard copy to look off of, just slip up your hand. One of our church members will come down the aisle and, and get you an extra. First Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3. This week we'll look at verses 4 through 9. But just to get the context, let's just read the whole thing and then we'll pray together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and I pray that you would help us to place ourselves in the context of this book, in the context in which this was written, in the very real lives and very real situations and names of the people that Paul is writing to, who have been radically uh, changed by the gospel, but still have a lot of changing to do. Father, I pray that you would help me to say true things from your scripture this morning that would stir our hearts to worship, that would comfort us in suffering, that would motivate us in our mission, that would convict us of our sin. I pray, uh, yet not I, but Christ in me, Father, would you preach this message? Um, through me. God, help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to respond 
uh, to true things written in this book preserved for us. We, we pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The prayer of thanksgiving, which introduces this first letter to the Corinthian church, is more stunning than you realize upon first reading it. This thanksgiving blessing at the beginning of the letter, it is wonderfully encouraging, terribly convicting. It is worldview changing. And it's not that Paul's style is that different from a traditional Greek letter. The traditional Hellenistic letter always began with a greeting followed by some type of prayer or praise or wishing for well-being. Consider our traditional formula when we write an email or a letter, Dear so-and-so, I hope you're doing well. Two stages, this is who I'm writing to, and here's my little word of blessing just to let you know that I care about you. Verses 4 through 9 is sort of that second step. You've got the introduction, verses 1 through 3, then the I hope you're doing well or the blessing before we get down to business in the body of the letter. The astounding thing, however, is the kind of positive note that Paul is able to strike in this prayer of thanksgiving all the while he's writing to what is one of the most notoriously messed up churches documented in the New Testament. The, the, the introductory prayer of thanksgiving doesn't become stunning until you get into the rest of the book and you realize exactly who it was that Paul was writing this to. As we'll discover in the pages and verses to come, the Corinthian church is far from an exemplary example in any category of church life. As we will see, the Corinthian church is marked by their divisiveness, their selfishness, their arrogance in dealing with one another, and their sin. It's amazing to me when I'm driving through the mountains of North Georgia and I see Corinth Baptist Church. I mean, out of all the names, (laughs) you chose Corinth. (laughs) But in these opening words, Paul actually thanks God for the good gifts to the Corinthian church, even though, as we'll see later, the things he's thanking God for, the good gifts that have been given to them, are the very things that they've misunderstood, twisted, abused, neglected, or turned into causes for boasting over and against one another. This Thanksgiving introduces you to things that Paul will address later in the letter, but in this moment, all he focuses on is the fact that they are gifts from God. See, Paul does something at the beginning of this letter that uh, many of us, if not most of us, are incapable of doing. He sees the world, and especially other Christians, through the lens of the gospel of grace. He sees the grace of God in an otherwise messed up group of people in the midst of unbelievably messed up situations. Paul is able somehow, some way to celebrate the good gifts and the work of the Lord in the lives of people whom not only does he intensely disagree with, 
but who are themselves slandering him and opposing him. Commentator Gordon Fee said it well. He says this, To delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those whom one feels compelled to disagree, is surely evidence of one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercy themselves. Paul is able to talk to these sinful Corinthians in this way because Paul himself was a sinful man. He had lived a totally foolish and Christless life. He was beset with weaknesses, struggles, and sins. And when he addresses these immature, infighting, sinful, hostile Corinthians, he's able to look at them and to still see the grace of God at work within them because they are not what they were, though they are not yet what they will be forever. Paul could identify with their struggle, empathize with their weakness, even rejoice in the evidence of God's grace in them. But at the same time, Paul does not give false affirmation or encouragement (laughs) to people who do not deserve it. There are other books where Paul praises the churches for their witness and for their faithfulness and for the good things that they have done. This is not one of those books. We should notice that in this introductory thanksgiving, Paul directs no thankfulness to them directly. He gives no false compliments so as to make anyone feel better about themselves. Part of the problem is that the Corinthians already feel too good about themselves. Paul's not one to speak untruths, just to butter up the listener. Rather, what he does in this thanksgiving is he directs all his thanksgiving to God himself. Because any good gift these people had came from God. And for that, he's thankful for the grace that's at work in them. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Truth number one, God gives grace in Christ Jesus. This is foundational to everything we believe as Christian people. Clearest definition that I think that you can find for grace uh, in the Bible might be in Paul's letters to the Ephesians. After describing uh, their dismal and desperate spiritual condition, he calls them children of wrath. He says, we all of us are children of God's wrath, always disobeying God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Grace is undeserved good favor that God pours out on us, though we've done nothing to secure it or earn it. And God had done this in the lives of the Corinthians. God had given them his kindness, his forgiveness, his eternal life, and he did so not because they had been righteous or that they would be righteous in the days that follow, but because Jesus had been righteous in their place. And so Paul can say, even though y'all are messed up, I am thankful that Jesus was not messed up and that he died for you. And that he gave you grace. They were now 
in Christ Jesus by virtue of their faith in the message of Jesus. The message that Jesus came to offer eternal grace of God to those who would believe. That was true of them in all of their mess. That is true for us in all of our mess. This is true for those around you who trust Christ in all of their mess. It's this common understanding and an appreciation that we are a people who live and breathe and will forever live and breathe only by the grace of God. And this affects not only our own lives, this affects our life with others. Milton Vincent reflects on this in his book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, and he says this, he writes this, this is how this type of thing affects communal life. He says, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people, for I'm always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who've wronged me, for it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who've wronged me is always opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my respective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. This is a description of what I believe Paul wanted for the communal life of the Corinthian church, a communal life shaped by the grace that God had given them. Verse 2 expounds on this grace given. You see, the grace of God we receive in Christ is even more than forgiveness in an eternal life. And verse uh, 5 goes on to say that, that in every way, You were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. So again, the the condition or the position that these people are in, he, he signifies as in him, in Jesus. If you recognize throughout this entire prayer, the main character is neither the Corinthians nor Paul. The main character is the Christ who is doing all these things. Things. But now the grace referred to is clarified. It's not just salvation he's thankful for, that there is a vast diversity of ways God has enriched these people with a variety of spiritual gifts. Truth number two, God's grace includes spiritual gifts. And the two that Paul mentions here are gifts we all enjoy from the Spirit of God. It's the gift of being able to know God's Word and the gift of being able to speak God's Word to others. Now, these gifts show up in our lives in a variety of ways, in a, a variety of capacities, but what Paul is praising God for is that they're not just forgiven for their sins, but they've actually been supernaturally given the ability to understand the message of God and articulate the message of God to a lost and dying world. There, there are not, these are not things that happen naturally in the hearts of sinners. The fact that I can read God's word and know true things about God and stand up here and explain it is not a natural ability. Later, Paul will emphasize this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And that we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God. That 
we might understand the things freely given us by God and impart in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you hear the emphasis? What, what's Paul thankful for? This is a messed up people, but why is he thankful? Because, because even though they've got all these problems, he still believes they know God, know his word, know how to explain it, and all of its grace. It's, it's a gift, not something we can boast in. Paul's praising the Lord that he had the privilege of seeing the light go on As these Christians were confronted with the one true God. He's praising God and redirecting their eyes that any good gift of speech, any good gift of knowledge, any good gift of understanding, it's not a matter of boasting, it's a matter of a good God that's given you things you don't deserve. Now they've forgotten that because as we'll see in the letter that they have turned knowledge and speech and rhetoric and Uh, wisdom as a grounds for their boasting. They've turned it into the measure by which they decide which leader to follow and which one to say is worse and which one to say is better. They've turned it as a means of being glorified in their midst rather than as good gifts of God to glorify Him. Have you ever been in a situation like that or a church like that? where the gifts of God's grace have turned into a contest to see who among us will be most glorified. It's a sickening reality happening in Corinth. It's a sickening reality that happens in every church. And Paul's not addressing that yet, but he's just pausing to say, I'm just thankful there's gifts at all. (laughs) Even though we may use them and abuse them and twist them for our own pleasure, I'm glad God keeps giving things that we take for granted. So God's grace includes the spiritual gifts. Truth number three. God's grace in us confirms the gospel that saves us. Look at verse six. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, So Paul understands this about the Christian. Paul understands that the grace of God given to us, any spiritual gifting or enrichment, any any good that begins to change us, he understands all of it to come into our lives in such a way that it actually confirms to us the truthfulness and the legitimacy of the message we've come to believe. If you know God this morning, If you have a desire in your soul to fight sin and not to protect sin, if you are able to understand God's word, able to explain it to anybody, if you have love for the things of God and the people of God and a hatred for the things that destroy your relationship with God, then you are a walking miracle. You are a walking billboard to the legitimate power of the gospel message you have believed in. The grace you have received now results in the glory that God deserves. Maybe you've heard that before. By His grace, for His glory. The grace you receive from God that you didn't deserve overflows into giving God the credit for the good things that He has done, is doing, and will forever do in you. Grace received results in glory giving. And what he's saying is, is that the good things, the good changes that happened in you, the Corinthians, has served to confirm 
the testimony of Christ to your own soul, but also to people around you. Transforming grace in our lives confirms the message of grace in the lives of others. Let me pause there and ask you a question. Do you you have any skeptics in your life? I mean, do you know any people who are skeptical about the testimony of Christ Jesus? Any people who have trouble believing that Jesus is God? Think about that skeptical person. Now ask yourself, if they observed your life from the day you decided to follow Jesus to this present day, would they see confirming evidence of the gospel's power? May I ask that again? If a skeptic in your life were to hear the message that you share with them and then were to see your life from the first moment you believe till this present moment, would they see something that confirmed that message or that delegitimized that message? Does your life authenticate the good news you say you believe in? Or would your life actually cause others to disbelieve the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, nowhere does Paul assume that Christians are or should be perfected in this life. If that were the case, uh, 1 Corinthians would look very differently. He does, however, suggest that anyone who is a Christian has been effected in this life, impacted in this life to a degree that the change validates the message, that the impact confirms the testimony they say they believe in. This is why hypocrisy is so dangerous, because you delegitimize the message the church is preaching by the life that you're living while also being a part of the church. See, when we become a Christian, God forgives us. He gives us gifts to serve Him and His church and His mission. He gives us the first fruits of His Spirit. Romans 8, verse 23 uh, says this, that, that we live in this world where creation is groaning, that we are groaning, but we have this thing. We have first fruits of the Spirit. As we groan inwardly, waiting eagerly, the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're we're waiting for a day where we're going to see Jesus face to face. But until then, we have this gift of grace in the Spirit of God that is changing us little by little, preparing us for that day, and confirming to us that what we believed is real. On Wednesday, I did an interview with um, Miss Millie. Uh, for a new podcast uh, that we'll be releasing just for the edification of, of uh, our church and others, uh, just called Salvation Stories, where we're just going to ask church members to tell their story of salvation and what God has taken them through and brought them through, and just as reminders that this is real, this, is, this isn't made up, like, this is real in real people's lives, and so you can just imagine me and Miss Millie across a microphone just jamming it up, right, and we're, we're interviewing and going back and forth, and I just, I took down this quote from her, and she says, I was at my kitchen sink, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm yours, and I'm following you, and from that moment, from that moment, my life changed, and I've never been the same since. 
In a moment of surrender, in a moment of saving faith, Miss Millie received grace. She received a whole variety of spiritual gifts that changed her life, and her changed life by the power of the Spirit began to confirm to her and to others that the message, the testimony of Christ she believed was real. Now, was Miss Millie perfect from that day forward? No. But praise God, Miss Millie was different from that day forward. Truth number three, God's grace in us confirms the gospel that saves us. And for that, Paul is thankful that such a work had begun in the Corinthians. But the fact of the matter was that though the work had begun in the Corinthians, it was far from finished. As we'll see, the Corinthians still had a lot of sin to repent of. A lot of things to learn, a lot of transformation that was needed. And so Paul doesn't stop his thanksgiving at what God had done. He presses forward in time and space to thank God for what Paul was confident God would do in the future. So look at verse 7 through 8. 7 through 8. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truth number four, God's grace sustains us to the end. Now, there's a lot of theology in verses seven and eight. It it actually took a lot for me not to just stop here and preach this next week, but let's try try to see the beauty that's here in this moment. Firstly, Paul gives this affirmation that the Corinthians are not lacking any good gift. He, he says God has not held out on you. He's not with, withheld from them anything that they need to persevere in life and godliness to the end. Secondly, Paul's not blinded to the difficulty of what we're doing here in this life, what they're doing here in this life. He recognizes that what we are doing is waiting. We as Christians are always in a state of grand anticipation. We, more than anyone on the planet, recognize that our life is one of waiting for something that's better than this life. We exist exist now, not as we will exist forever. We exist now in bodies that are deteriorating, not getting stronger. We exist now with sin natures that war against us without rest. We exist now seeing the world and God only dimly, only partially, but one day in full. We're in a moment of painful and difficult waiting for the revealing of all that God has promised us in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, Paul is sure of what is at the end of all our waiting in these verses. He references the day of the Lord that is coming, a day mentioned throughout the Old Testament as a day of reckoning, a day where God will judge all those who oppose him and fully and finally save all those who followed him in faith. And it is in light of that coming that Paul's thankful that what God's going to do is to sustain them until the end to see Jesus face to face. Despite all the mess, all the screw-ups, all the sinfulness, all the arrogance, gospel message has made possible In this introductory thanksgiving, a gospel optimism, a gospel confidence, a gospel hope, their eternity was not up to them anymore. 
Their eternity was sealed in the person and work of Jesus. Much of this letter is about the way the Corinthians have failed in their blamelessness and their guiltlessness. Much of this letter is about the, how the Corinthians were, in fact, guilty. I mean, that's, the whole letter is moving from one topic of their guiltiness to the next topic of their guiltiness. The way that they are failing, and despite all of that, Paul looks down the corridor of time and he rejoices not over what they are, but over what they will be by the grace of God. They will be guiltless on the day of the Lord. If you don't feel how wonderful that is, then you have not been confronted yet with how guilty you are. This is beautiful because we all know how guilty we are in the face of a holy God. We, we are guilty. But Paul says when we stand before God that what will be declared over us is guiltless. Not because we actually are guiltless, but because Christ was guiltless and died in our place. They will be guiltless on the day of the Lord because they will have been sustained by the grace of the Lord until the very end. Do you see that? Sustained. Grace is not just active in the moment where you turn from your sin and you start following Jesus. Grace is active in the moment 20 years later, when you feel like throwing in the towel. Christian, have you ever thought about giving up on Christianity? Have you ever been crushed by the burden of the present and lost sight of the future so that you want to just stop? You ever wondered... Uh, Will I make it until the end believing and following the Lord? I'll be real with you. I have had these moments. So if you're sitting there trying to decide whether uh, it's okay to have those moments, here's one of your pastors confessing to you. I have those moments. I mean, I started vocational ministry very young. I started pastoring this church at 24 years old. And there are days where I wonder, can I really make it to the end? I mean, I'm 32. And I wonder, can I really preach this Bible for the next 30 or 40 years, if the Lord gives me that long? Like, can I really keep caring for people this way? I wonder if I can keep my passion. I wonder if I can focus on the mission. I wonder if I can keep forgiving people. I wonder if I can keep being patient with people. I wonder if I can keep believing. I wonder if I can keep pouring out even though all it does is get you burnt. I wonder if I can keep trusting. I wonder, I wonder if the suffering and the stress gets not only severe. It's one thing for the suffering and stress to be severe. It's another thing for it to be long and constant. Maybe you've had similar wonderings. I just want to encourage you this morning that Paul doesn't put your perseverance in your hands. 
he recognizes that our perseverance to the end is not according to our work. It's according to our trust in the sustaining grace of God. Our enduring to the end will be one more reason we stand before the throne of God and say it was all by your grace and it was all for your glory. I read this yesterday from a new book entitled Faithfully Present. I just thought it was beautiful, so I thought maybe you would too. He writes this, he says, Time belongs to the God who made its beginning and is sovereign over its end and who will bring us one day to our eternal home with him. A perpetual springtime, an unending day where time, as we presently understand it, will no longer be governed by the inevitability of endings, but it shall gallop onward forever into a deathless future of no regrets. Time doesn't need to haunt you when you know it does not hold you, for the one who holds time holds you. Thank God for his grace in Christ. Thank God for his spiritual gifts of grace. Thank God for his confirmation of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of people around us. Thank God for his sustaining grace that will take us to the end. And so here what Paul does, he takes us from the grace of God given to us in the past when we first believed. He takes us forward into the future of what's been promised to us. And then in verse 9, he comes back and centers in on the present once again. Verse 9, our last verse and our last truth. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord truth number five God's grace called us into a present fellowship truth number four was God's grace sustains us to the end, truth number five, God's grace called us into a present fellowship. Listen, God is faithful. He will do what he has promised. He will finish what he has started. And so he moves from the forward looking now to the present moment. And God says, hey, God's, or Paul says, God has called you into fellowship with himself. Paul reminds the Corinthians that what they are called to is not just future reality, it's present reality. It's a present fellowship they have with the living Jesus, but not just with the living Jesus, but with all those who call on the name of Jesus. They have a present fellowship with each other so that this sustaining grace of God is not to be done in isolation. It's to be done in and through other people who are being sustained by the grace of God. The word he uses here is an important word in the New Testament that if you've been around me at all, you have heard me quote this before. When the people of God heard the gospel and received it for the first time, the first thing they did in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. They gave themselves over to some things. They gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching, that is the word of God, and to the fellowship. Greek word koinonia, which means common unity. This shared participation of life with other people who believe in the same Jesus. And here Paul says, God's faithful. He'll finish what he started. And what did he start in these? He created a fellowship of people sharing life together around the same Jesus. Why does he reference it here? Because he wants them to see their present reality, the miracle which is the community of faith, as a tiny down payment, an imperfect down payment of what will forever be, a forever fellowship with us 
and with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And this too, for Paul, was a gift to be thankful for. Even though their church was screwed up. (laughs) Full of sinners. Trying to make it to glory. Paul praised God. That God would call a group of sinners out of the world into a fellowship, not only with God, but with each other. That they might be sustained by the grace of God to the last day when they see Jesus face to face. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me hit you, and I'm just going to say them. Five takeaways. Five truths, five takeaways, right? Number one, be thankful. Number one, be thankful. Paul is showing the ability to walk in thankfulness. In the midst of a moment where there is a lot that he could disparage. There's a lot he could grieve over. There's a lot that he could look out at the Corinthian church and think that his labor was in vain. Be thankful. Number two, be humble. Not once does Paul say that any of this is because the Corinthians were awesome. All of this is the grace of God. Paul sees his own life, his own ministry as the grace of God. How is he called? Called by the will of God to be an apostle. So be humble. Number three, be useful. One of the things he's thanking God for is that their lives are confirming the testimony of the gospel. Be used by God in that way. Truth or takeaway number four, be hopeful. No matter what's going on in the present, Paul directs their eyes to a glorious future. We, above all people in the world, have reason to be weirdly optimistic. And number five, be communal. All of the yous here in this passage are second person plural. He is not writing to individuals. He's writing to a group of people that will not believe these things by themselves. He's writing to a group of people that have been called into a koinonia, a fellowship. And so if you're a Christian here trying to do it all by yourself, you're trying to do something which nobody has successfully done in the history of Christianity. You weren't designed to do Christianity by yourself, but with a large number of people who will help you be sustained. They will be the means of grace in your sustaining to the end. So be thankful, humble, useful, hopeful, communal, and uh, let's pray that we'll respond in that way. Father, we want to take a moment 
And we just want to pray for what has been modeled in this Thanksgiving greeting. Um, I think that we can read 1 Corinthians a little too quickly, and we, we forget that Paul is writing a letter, but that before he sat down to write this letter, there was a whole world of situations and conversations and discussions and struggles and stress and perhaps depression. But Father, you gave him the strength by the power of your spirit to sit down and have this particular perspective. And so, Father, we pray that you would work that miracle in our lives, that you would give us a gospel perspective over our lives, over the people in our lives, over the situations. And, Father, that we would uh, be Christian people in how we think and how we love and how we respond and how we rest and how we sleep at night, trusting that all these promises would be true, God. Shape us to be a gospel people whom have been so changed by the message of the cross that it has overflowed into every detail of our lives, even into the introductions of a letter, Father. And we pray, God, uh, consume us with true things and help us to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.